Welcome to today's Ascend Over Liability webinar. Uh, this is Fred Shankelberg, and uh, I wanted to talk about some of the critical concepts. And given my little trouble here in the first two minutes of having everything all set up and then something crashed and not having a backup ready to go. I've been doing this for uh, on close to five years through Ascendo. And yeah, we've run into a range of different issues over time, and it just highlights one of the key concepts is that everything fails. Everything that we can make, everything that's in nature, everything um, at one point or another will fail. And by failure, I mean, doesn't perform as expected, doesn't perform in a product or a system uh, or an item ceases to function. For example, it would be a generic or a broad sense of what a failure is. Now we could have an entire webinar just on how do you define failures, and um, especially when you have no trouble found or no fault found kinds of issues, is to what exactly is a failure and what counts and doesn't count. Here I'm using the term failure very, very broadly. And eventually, as you know, the sun will burn out. It will either, uh, I don't think it's gonna supernova, I, I read that someplace, but it will cease, it will run out of fuel. It will die. Um, that even that steadfast system that will last for billions of years is going to fail. And once that fails, pretty much anything that we make on the earth is going to stop functioning also uh, or cease to, to operate at some point. Although I have heard that the Hoover Dam is going to run for a long, long, long time after everything else is gone. Um, so unless there's a major catastrophe to those systems, it's pretty robust and I expect that to last long past everybody else. Now in reliability engineering, the work that we do is often really aimed at, well, how do we know this thing or item or system is going to last long enough? And so we often are working on, well, how do we design something or maintain something so we can skip the failures for now? or minimize the failures for now, mitigate them in some form or fashion. And that's a, a key tenet of what we do is we deal with failures and trying to push them off, right? But we also have to focus on the, the, the basic premise of what we do in dealing with failures is that we have to understand them, right? And we have to understand the systems and the people and the decisions and all of the elements that come together that allow us to push off or delay these failures or minimize or mitigate failures uh, in whatever we're working with. And by doing so, that's how we add value to an organization. We, we bring a unique perspective to an organization with a focus on failures that few others actually do, right? Now, I'm gonna caveat that because uh, Henry Petrosky, one of my favorite authors, uh, in in one of his books where he's looking at the history of engineering, essentially, in a, in a large context, it makes the statement that most designers, most engineers design away from failure because they want their system to work. They want their product to work. And I truly believe that. I've seen that over and over and over again. Yet uh, a mechanical engineer may understand some failure mechanisms, may understand material strength like a material scientist does and incorporate that into their design, but may not fully understand the range of types of failures that could occur for that particular system. And that's where the depth of knowledge of a reliability engineer steps in and assists that mechanical engineer into creating enough understanding of what could fail so that they can design appropriately. We supplement what they're doing in order for the design to work. So here's a question for you while I grab my first sip of water here, is in the questions tab, can you answer this question? Are failures good or are they bad?
and you can use whatever perspective you'd like, you know, if you're testing or if you're a customer or if you're a design engineer or an operations manager or wherever you are, how do you, what's your view of are failures good or are they bad? Uh, Evan's spoken like a true statistician or engineer. It depends, right? I agree with that. Let's see. The um, failures are good that provide a livelihood for engineers. Yeah, and you've probably heard me say this is it keeps everything fails. Thus, we have job security. You know, eventually everything's going to fail. Um, Max, uh, I like it. You know, good failures equal learning. We're going to circle back to that quite a bit later. Uh, Ganesh, many people consider failures bad. And well, I'm going to challenge that a little bit as we go forward. Andre, good in the sense that you get data points, yeah, and, and that's a good point. If you can have a, a lot of failures with absolutely no failures, and it's hard to judge exactly what you're learning there. We learn from them. We provide an opportunity to learn. Early stages, it's great. You know, yeah, good, good learning opportunities. Good so long as it doesn't hurt people. Yeah, keep it safe. Good is keeping engineers in a job. All good, All right? So let me. I think this. I'm speaking to the choir here. Is is kind of the uh, added add here. Now, for some of you, I mean, failures happen. Always happen. All right. And and I like the first answer, Evan. Is it depends. You know, if it fails and it's unsafe and it harms our customers or society in some way, well, that's not a good thing. Yet. It will happen. There's a finite probability that all systems will fail at some point or another. And many of our products, and you probably have a lot of experience yourself with products that did not work as expected or failed to function, just like my startup today of getting um, my browser to show the slides um, failed for me. Now, the consequence of some failures is pretty significant. And those are typically what we consider a bad failure. If we, yet even given a catastrophic failure, if we can learn something, if we can alter our designs and our expectations and our knowledge about how things fail, uh, it provides some information for us. So we can um, still learn from all failures. It, it's just more painful at some points in the in the life cycle of a product or a system. But one of the key tenets, one of the basic functions of reliability engineering is that failure happens, right? There are, these things are going to happen. And if we manage that, uh, when it occurs, we can learn enough to do our second key function is to mitigate them or postpone them or delay them. And so you, if you've listened to any of my podcasts before and many of my webinars in the past, I've talked about failure mechanisms. Now, I know firsthand in doing FMEAs that many people confuse a failure mode, M-O-D-E, with mechanism, the process. I want to be very clear what I mean here. The failure mode is a symptom. It's what a customer experiences. For me, it was my... Uh, display uh, software for this slide set today didn't work. It wasn't showing the slide deck, and and it, I had to restart that part of the of the application. That was a failure mode. My symptom was it wasn't showing the slides when I wanted them to be available. Or you turn the key in your car, uh, and it doesn't start. Those are symptoms that something has gone wrong. But using the car as an example, it could be that um, it's the wrong key and it won't engage the the, uh, uh, the starting function of your car, uh, or the starter has failed, so it doesn't turn over even though it has power. The battery could have failed, and uh, or some other element of your system, like no no fuel in the system, or somebody took the motor off out of your car and there's no motor there whatsoever to, to even start. I mean, it could be a long list of reasons why it doesn't start. Now, looking at just the battery, 
the failure mechanism could go further than that, that the battery is drained. Well, why is that drained? Now, now we're getting into that five whys kind of a process. And at some point there could be, we left the door ajar and so the dome light was on and the current was draining. And so the battery is, is depleted because <clears throat> there was a, a small current drain for a long period of time, right? Or it could be another why, well, why was the door ajar, right? Well, there was debris in the door that didn't let it latch or it was a human error that I didn't notice that it wasn't quite latched all the way and the light was off. And so it was, that, and then why was that? Well, I was distracted. And you could go on and on and on with that. And typically a mechanism is down to where it's some fundamental phenomena, um, a physics or a chemistry or uh, a human decision that um, led directly to that failure to occur. So a mechanism in my mind for most of what we do is the physics and chemistry of what's happening. It's it's not the symptom that we see, it's the underlying um, initiating cause that does it. So if I alter, say, making sure that the, I pay attention to when I close the door, um, which I usually do after I get a dead battery and notice that the door was ajar uh, for a couple of months, uh, I can avoid that problem. I have learned something and I can avoid it. If you know, if it was actually a bad chemistry in the battery, the battery had worn itself off from too many charges and discharges, or it was cracked and the battery fluid had, had drained out, then there's other rationale down to a mechanism. Was it mechanical damage to it? Was there a chemical depletion of it? Whatever it was. A lot of what we do in dealing with reliability work is understanding the mechanism. We can solve mechanisms. Right, we can solve elements that are are in the physics and chemistry world. The human ones are more difficult. We can alter systems or create uh, elements that alert people that something's not correct. Those are all possible, but the the underlying fundamental mechanisms and our understanding of those is, is what allows us to work with engineering teams to solve those problems. And that goes back to what Henry Petrosky talked about is that engineers tend to design away from failures. Well, that predicate, that, that implies that we have to understand those failures. And, and in deeper into that is we need to understand the actual, what's going on that causes that failure to occur. One more example, let's say it's corrosion, right? Uh, electro, um, oh, no, I'm drawing a blank on it, the example I wanted to use. Um, if I have a corrosion that requires some kind of solvent or ionizing type fluid, we have some metal, say a copper, for example, and we need some voltage. Electromigration, that's the term I'm thinking of, which will cause a short between uh, uh, various polarities of, of traces by growing a copper strand between the two of them causing a short, but it requires that electric field to drive the copper from one potential to the other. But it also requires a little bit of a solution to dissolve essentially, re release the copper so that it can move and create these beautiful looking trees as it finds a path following the, the current or the, the voltage uh, gradient to create a short. But understanding that mechanism means that we need to have metals that are susceptible to dissolving essentially in the right conditions, something that causes the dissolving, some solvent or solution of some sort, and we need the voltage. And so by understanding it at that level, we can separate the traces further apart. We can reduce the voltage field, the, the gradients that are causing the growth. We can change the metals. We can encapsulate them. We can uh, prevent the, the contaminated uh, solutions or solvents from getting on these systems. But given the fundamental understanding of, of what's happening, it gives us many, many options of then of how to go solve it. 
Now, of course, some problems are harder than others. There's no, no worry, worries with that. But when we are faced with a problem or a failure, there's one approach that I've seen so many people use, and it's one of those early tenets we learn about in failure analysis. And I call it the ready, shoot, aim approach. It's where you get three, four people in the room, you've just learned about a problem, and some engineer says, oh, I know what to do with that, and runs out of the room and says, I'm gonna go implement this solution. That's a ready shoot, and then they go sort out whether they're actually solving the right problem or not. Now, now sometimes they actually get it right, right? They solve a problem, and we all consider them geniuses and, and heroes. But many times they don't. The presenting symptoms don't always give us a clear picture of what the problem is. So having the discipline to describe the problem, to gather information about it, to do the experimental work, to fully understand the underlying uh, mechanisms, then allows us to, to implement a solution. And I heard many years ago, one way that you, once you, one way to tell if you understand the failure mechanism is that you can turn it on and off, right? If I understand it well enough to know that if I add this particular ionic solution, this chlorine atoms, uh, ions to this mix, that the electromigration happens. And if I take away that contaminant, then it doesn't happen. I understand it well enough now to know that that's one of the key elements for that piece of corrosion. And that's a simple example, but the idea is with this eight disciplines or plan, do, check, act type processes is that we focus in on understanding at as fundamental level as we can, such that we can turn on and off this particular mechanism. It, it helps us to avoid guessing. It helps us avoid try everything and hope something works. It focuses our work on both learning and then solving the problem that actually is at play in our particular situation. So the key part of, I think, of what we do as reliability engineers is implement this disciplined approach. Is that, and it's aimed towards understanding first, then solving. Now, of course, we fight all kinds of barriers to doing that is we need to get the line up and running. We need to get this product shipped. We need to reduce the cost. We need to, uh, we, we have a potential solution. One of these solutions will probably work. Let's try all three and save the time it takes to investigate it. The culture that we face in many organization doesn't allow us or give us the privilege of going off and, and learning from failures. The other part of the culture that I really don't like is when the organization blames people for a failure. And I hope you don't work in an organization like this. If you say, hey, you know, I noticed this isn't working uh, correctly today. Uh, what are we going to do about it? And either you get tasked with having to go solve it. So if you're already busy, you don't mention any more problems unless you really need to solve that problem. And another issue is, is that you get uh, well, it's your fault. If you found the problem, it's your fault. And, and you get a, a bad rap or look down on for talking about failures. And you see this in FMEAs where people won't want to talk about how a product will fail, even when it's a process that is deliberately trying to figure out how it fails. It, it's just not safe to talk about it. And that's a cultural issue. Now, what I advocate is that every failure and I saw that earlier in, in the messaging, is that every failure provides an opportunity to learn. We ran into a barrier, we ran into a, a hurdle or a, a something that either that we suspected, you know, this flange can only take so many foot pounds of pressure uh, or, or force before it fails, before it deforms. And that confirms what we knew in the design process. So we have plenty of margin. But if it failed at half the rated load that we wanted it to carry, we learned something that one of our assumptions was wrong or one of our figures in the calculations earlier for the design was wrong. And we learned something, we can deal with that. So there's plenty of ways that the culture around us 
affects how we are able to deal with failures in product and and either design them out or address them or, or, or go after them. Part of what we do, another key tenet of what we do is shaping that culture, making it safe for the entire organization to talk about failures. Yeah, and just checking out one of the comments here. It's a good point is, you know, oftentimes we're looking for potential failures and we don't see them, but it's it we have to be prepared to be surprised. Now, there's things that we look for that we're absolutely looking for, say that electro migration and it's occurring. But let's say we get some other completely different failure, say an electrolytic capacitor uh, uh, explodes. Uh, euphemistically, it's called venting. Well, what when I'm there? Is there some other phenomena at play here that's causing the overvoltage uh, for these parts? Or was it a bad part? Let's deal with that. The issue is, is that the greater part of the organization is is going to guide or manage how we go about dealing with failures and how much time or much effort we go into doing failure analysis, but also on how we think about and treat, say, a prototype failure. A simple example is one in the 10 prototypes doesn't start up. And if that's just quickly dismissed as, well, it's a prototype, you know, they're, they're quickly made and it's not a finished design, so we're not going to worry about it. Well, I think that cultural element there is, one, we're wasting one-tenth of our resources building a prototype that doesn't work. So let's at least learn from it of what, what happened. Why did that fail? Oftentimes, that's a precursor to things we're going to see when we ramp up into the production and, and use the system otherwise. It doesn't always pan out, but if we don't look, we're going to see it later if it's there. And if we don't, if it is just the phenomena that affected just uniquely to that prototype process, well, we can improve the prototyping process, and that has value also. And so, keep in mind that the the cultural element around how we think about failures is is a part of what we do. We set the example of how to mine the gold that comes out of failures. All right, so here's another question for you. Um, how do you reward failure prevention, right? And I ask it this way because there's plenty of reward systems and organizations for when you deal with a failure. There's a big uh, customer that has reporting a, a field failure and they want it solved and 10 people jump on airplanes and the half the team redesigns it over the weekend and you solve it and everybody's recognized and they're patted on the back and given parking spots and so on. Well, how do you reward failure preventions? <laughs> Thanks, Todd. That looks kind of like an honest answer. Not very well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's from a financial point of view, a failure prevention is we didn't spend the money on warranty. We didn't spend the engineering time resolving a problem. And it's isn't that what we're supposed to do anyway, is avoid problems, right? It, it's a good point. It's it's not obvious, oftentimes overtly done. Hero of the day type, yeah. Sorry to hear that, Andre. Um, yeah, Lana Attaboys. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's as simple as doing that. It's just, it doesn't have to be an expensive thing. It doesn't have to be a bonus structure. It's part of what we do as a job. But it, the trouble is, and this goes way back to um, uh, In Search of Excellence by, I think it was Tom Peters, if I remember the author's name right. And he talks about that oftentimes our management systems are set up to find people doing something wrong or a product that is out of spec. But we we often don't pay attention to when something is going well or when somebody does something right. Um, for example, in SBC, we often use the rules to look for an out-of-control circumstance. And we often forget that that out-of-control circumstance may lead to an improvement in a process. But we have to pay attention to that it's not always a bad thing. 
when something is out of a, out of control in, a, in an SBC process. It, it may well, it often is, but it may well point to an improvement. We ran in inadvertently or somebody did something that improved the process. Well, how do we capture that? It's hard enough to do in, an S, in a process control setting, but when we're dealing with engineering teams and people taking the initiative to avoid or prevent a problem, sometimes just making it visible and recognizing them with an attaboy or with a pat on the back or recognition of some sort is enough to reinforce that process of doing it. It's catching people doing what they're supposed to be doing and doing it well, and then highlighting those traits in a, fail a failure avoided actually saves us money. It does show up on the bottom line. And so we can calculate the value of doing those things. It just is, it's more difficult. It, that's all. It's easy to count how much it costs when 10 failures come in the door because we can tally up how much it costs our organization to, to replace that unit, repair it, or do whatever. But if those 10 units didn't show up, how much did that save us, right? And where did that money go instead? And so that becomes more invisible. And I think part of what we do is is making sure that the things that are rec that are in line with creating a reliable product should be recognized and highlighted. Yeah. Now I, I've seen this before, uh, Maximilian, is where you know the design team is the ones that actually see the field failures. So it's in their own personal interest for time management to not design it well so they don't get distracted later on the next design by having to solve problems on the next on the on the previous product that can work in some circumstances it also can be why well, I really like fixing problems and I get recognized for fixing problems after the fact you have to balance out exactly how that reward system or that culture is maybe there's value in the firefighting process but if you just design it well you don't get any recognition, and, and that's something to be aware of. Good comment. Let's see, do this. Very low spending and failure prevention. You know, and preventing problems is actually a really good return on investment, right? It costs us way less to deal with problems and avoid them than it does to replace the product or do emergency repairs or especially when the line is down or a significant problem occurs and we lose market share, for example. The idea is that that return on investment has to be made visible, right? And both at the interaction of people actually taking steps to do it and showing them how that makes a difference in that organization, but also in a financial setting, right? How do we quantify the contribution of prevented failures, right? If we were currently running along at a 5% field failure rate and we take some preventative actions in our next design um, and we come in at 4% field failure rate, well, we proactively change the failure rate. Now it becomes dicier because oftentimes we're, we're building off of what we learned from the previous field failure. So it could be considered reactive. Yet, when we bring on a new technology or we bring on a new component or type of uh, design element and we don't have the field history for it, we can still do preventative work to show that if I add this margin here, I reduce the potential of failure by this amount and the cost per failure times that and our volume allows us to calculate out what cost we just avoided. Now, it never actually gets realized unless you do the experiment both ways. You leave that fault in and you take it out. Most of us don't want to take that level of experimentation all the way through. Yet I think articulating how important it is to do something like stress strength calculations or derating or doing uh, addressing issues we find in the design process allows us then to pre prevent actual costs from occurring in the future. And for every dollar we save in warranty, is a dollar back into profit. A lot of organizations appreciate that kind of logic. So we'll talk some more about that later. All right, now one of our roles in reliability engineering is, is based on that 
we're rarely in a position where we can say, no, that's not going to work. Don't ship it. And then it won't ship. We rarely are in a position where we have control over the process, right? We can contribute uh, concepts to the life, the product life cycle. We can contribute information and, and material to the design teams as they make decisions. We can contribute uh, checklist items and questions to ask selected vendors uh, before we make a decision on which vendor to use. All of those kinds of things allow us are, are really our ability to influence other people, influence their decisions. Now, the hard part is, is that we can set up a report or we can do an analysis and we can create a beautiful field data analysis or do failure analysis all day long. But if nobody actually uses them to do anything, then we have very little influence. We may have checked off all the things we've been asked to do and still have little to no influence. And so a key talent, another one of these key concepts or tenets is that we recognize that we're in a consulting role, right? Which means that we need to know what we're talking about. We need to do the research and the homework and the experimental work and the and the hitting the bucks so that when somebody says, what is this happening? Why did this fail? We can say, well, that was electromigration. Here's the how it works. Here's the references for it. Here's how we know we can control it. Here's where the source of these various elements come into play. And here's our options to solve it. By understanding problems well enough to help people design them out of a product builds trust in our recommendations. And it's every step of the way, every interaction we have, we have to guard ourselves on providing information that is actually helpful. It, it's not one thing to say, oh, that's uh, electromigration, deal with it. They may not know enough about it. You can save them a lot of time by contributing that detailed information about the failure mechanisms and provide options. We oftentimes have this engineering title in our, in our nameplates as reliability professionals. Well, we get to play in all kinds of different engineering fields. We're not going to be the expert mechanical engineer and material scientist and failure analyst and statistician and, and so on, all these different fields that we get to work with in software engineering and so on. Yet, we can learn enough to be a contributor in all of those areas. And part of that is hinge right back to understanding failures. And so that's what I mean by do the homework and research and the math is it enables us to contribute to the engineering discussions to find solutions. And by doing so, we gain trust and having the trust of your organization allows us to influence at greater and greater levels. Now, you can blow that completely by providing guidance or information that is just plain wrong. And you'll have to start all over if you even get a chance to start over. So it's it's contingent on us as engineers knowing what we're doing and paying attention to what we're doing. And with the focus on, this is the key part, it's not just doing what we're told, go run this experiment or go do a HALT test. It's making sure that those that HALT report, for example, is understood and used hey, this uh, lead on this capacitor broke off in the Holt testing. It has too much mass up high and in application or in transport, we're going to see this level of, of vibration. Here's the uh, finite element analysis that shows the amount of deflection that this mass at this height has. And here's the metal fatigue phenomena that occurs in that lead that causes the problem of cracking and opening that lead. It's that level of detail that we need to go to over and over and over again. But it allows us then to influence decisions within the organization. Now, a number of years ago, somebody, I was telling a story about how this electrical engineer I was working with really didn't appreciate me showing up. And it was, it was my fault. I, every time I showed up, I was telling him how he couldn't, his design wasn't going to work. I was either doing testing that showed that this failed or that failed, or I was showing them how we can't manufacture that in a successful way or whatever. 
And so he just really didn't like me showing up. And we were working in cubicles, so it was hard to avoid me. I just stand in his in in his at the entrance to his cubicle, and eventually said, "All right, what problem did you bring me today?" Now that didn't create a very good working solution uh, be, or relationship between the two of us. And the the change was one time when I recognized his frustration. I says, "Well, how can I help you?" He says, well, you know, you're bringing me failures, but you're not bringing me solutions. Well, I don't know how to solve these things. He says, but you can bring me enough information about this failure, not just the symptoms, but the mechanisms. Why did it fail? And that allows me then to do something about it. And years ago, somebody, I was telling that, relating that story, and a colleague of mine said, well, you have to realize that you're approaching the world from a failure space. You look at it, and they was telling the story of, it makes it difficult, being a reliability engineer makes it difficult to get on an airplane. I used to fly a lot uh, up and down the West Coast and, and it was always a 737, um, not the max version, it was well before that. And I looked, turn right inside the door, you turn around and up above that door was a little placard that showed the age of the plane. You know, it's, it's tailed its serial number essentially and when it was put into service. And these planes were starting to get older than my kids. And uh, it was like, okay, how long are these planes supposed to be able to survive as a, a frame? And you know, how, is this wing gonna stay on there? Everything I look at is through the lens of it's, it's gonna fail and can I trust it? Now, I fully realize that flying is way safer than driving to the airport yet right? Stuff makes the news and I consider it when I'm driving is making sure my car is well-maintained and making sure I drive defensively and all those other things. Uh, but it's, we tend to look at, at the world through a failure space and lens. Whereas the mechanical or this electrical engineer I was working with, he wanted to create a design that created, that performed the set of functions that were, were in the requirements. He wanted it to be successful. The program manager wanted it to be successful. The customer wants it to be successful, right? Failures were deemed as a bad thing and success was what we're aiming for, what we're shooting for. And it's just a different view of the world, which is fine. It's their um, complements of each other. Yet we can change our language to say that it's 98% reliable over two years, as opposed to say it's a 2% failure rate over two years. It has exactly the same meaning, right? 2% uh, will have a probability of failing over two, or two years. It's a complement. Yet when we bring a, a problem to an electrical engineer and we provide enough information that they can solve it, We've shifted our language into, we found this problem or issue, or as uh, we would say at HP, uh, opportunity was another term we often use, that will help us achieve our 98% over two year goal. Right? right now we're at 95% success rate and we wanna be at 98% success rate. So if we solve these three things, we'll be a lot closer to getting there. But it's a subtle change in our language but recognizing that the people we work with are often working to make something work. They're in the success space. And we're often looking at, well, how can it fail? Which isn't the way they want to view the world, even though we're oftentimes violently agreeing. Let's see. Yeah, exactly right in this comment is that a lot of our work is to help people make informed decisions and reliability is a lot harder to measure in many cases than time to market or cost or functionality. And so we work to help people um, uh, get the information they need in order to make these decisions. Now, I often say that reliability occurs at the point of decision, right? It, it's not just the design review at the end of the line saying, hey, it's good enough or it's not good enough. The, Reliability occurs when we decide it's going to be plastic versus metal. It's, it 
occurs when we decide there's going to be this technology versus that, where it's going to have redundancy or not, whether it's going to, what sets of functions is it going to have, and how, how likely are we able to design those in? How are we going to assemble it? Which vendors are we going to use? And then is this capacitor get located here or over here? One of them is a little closer to a screw that mounts the circuit board which deflects the board, which has the potential to crack that capacitor, that multi-layer ceramic capacitor. If I move it just a little further away, it has less of a chance to fail. Now, we could spend the time to figure out exactly what that change in failure rate is. And we often don't. We put those think kinds of things in to lay out guidelines and keep out zones and things like that for a range of different reasons. But it makes a difference. And it's that decision, that kind of detailed, finite, very peculiar little decision, do I put it here or put it over here 10 millimeters away, that can make a difference in the reliability of your system. And there's thousands and thousands of those decisions that occur in not just the designer area, but in the manufacturing team and in the, in the suppliers teams and your vendors teams and your warehousing teams and installers and, and and how it's used and how we understand how it's used, all of those decisions affect the resulting reliability. And there's no way we're going to be involved with every one of those decisions. Yet a big part of what we do is set up structures and infrastructure and culture that affects all of those decisions. Right? We create systems that allow people to understand the importance of put the capacitor here or here, for example, or what questions to ask vendors or how the impact of material change affects based on the, the environment that we're going to be in. A big part of what we do is focus on decisions. And those decisions are aimed at providing sufficient information and structure so that they can consider the impact on the reliability or on avoiding failures. All right. Yeah, and you're exactly right, Lana. Is, uh, one of the things is that we, we work with decision makers in, at all levels of an organization, and it's our ability to influence them and to guide them in creating derating guidelines, for example, and training people on how to use them, or sharing how things fail, the failure analysis that we're seeing from field failures, and conveying that information across the organization in a way that we all can learn from it. And it's part this particular failure mechanism, but part is how could we have avoided this? What's our long-term structural change that allows us to avoid these problems? So there's lots of different ways we can influence decisions. Now, a key part is to understand which decisions are being made. Right. If we're setting up to do an accelerated life test, well, when do you need this results? This might be a basic element of when somebody needs to make a decision. And that's essentially how I got started in reliability engineering. They said, we need to know if this is going to last for 20 years and we need to know it in six months. And like, okay, well, that means I have to do an accelerated life test, which I don't know how to do. So I went and figured that out and then started a essentially at that point started a career in reliability. But I was able to provide the results of that accelerated test that gave the decision makers additional information about the expected failure mechanisms and how likely they were to fail over a 20 year duration under particular circumstances, under particular environment. And then they use that information to make the, the decisions to go forward with that product or not. And they did, actually. The product was actually very durable. Um, looking at the comments here. Uh, all right. I think I've got another question for you. So what are the what would you say are the top three sources of failures? Um, Say in a generic sense, you don't have to pick particular failure mechanisms, but where are three sources of failures?
Yeah. And Andre, I wanted to take another look at your comment. You're exactly right. It's heading in the right direction is oftentimes the best we can do. And that that is, you know, part of influencing these decisions. If it's just ignored or we can't, we don't measure that or we don't have any feedback on that or that's too difficult. There are some of the many excuses we hear about even measuring or estimating reliability. And without that feedback, we don't know if we're getting better or worse, but we can also narrow it down to just best practices and good sound engineering principles and understanding the phenomena of the failure mechanisms and making sure we're making design decisions that mitigate or avoid those problems, right? Um, the idea is that we can cause influence, or we, we can influence a very large organization by, by being very focused on that that's part of what we do. That's what we're there for. It's not to take the blame when something goes wrong or just do failure analysis. It's, well, how do I avoid these failures? How do I mitigate these things? How do I get a system in place so that these failure mechanisms just don't have the chance to occur at the rate they're occurring? All right, so I'm gonna look at some of the questions for sources of failures. Now, insufficient testing, I would disagree with that. Testing is kind of a last resort and testing doesn't create a reliable product. It gives us a, a reflection of is it reliable or not, in, if it's a reliability-related uh, test. Um, but testing in and of itself is a feedback mechanism, right? It's not the source of the failure. The failure doesn't occur whether we test or not, right? We can design our product, never test it at, at all, and it can work just fine or it could fail miserably in the field. Testing would have helped us decide is it good or not good but it didn't actually create the failures, right? Uh, assembly, human factors, and usage. All right, good. I, I would add, I would have added engineers, lack of redundancy. Now, a lot of things, would, we don't want redundancy. Um, it's too expensive, uh, so we don't do it. Our, like your iPhone probably has very little, if any, redundancy. Uh, in, inappropriate materials, that's closer to what I'm looking for, is in the design area. Yeah, everything can cause failures. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I like that comment. Um, Andre's uh, op incorrect operation, incorrect design, lack of maintenance, and so on. Yep, all good. Uh, design margins or limits, over design. Now, so let me share these out. Now, there's lots of ways we come to failures, but it's usually a decision, right? We decide to put that capacitor closer to the edge, either out of ignorance or that we had no options or it was a calculated risk and we decided to do that. But we, then we find that in assembly, um, they weren't aware of that trade-off. And so they decided to bolt it down like they normally do and ended up cracking those capacitors leading to those systems failing. By the way, that's actually a, a real case that I, I ran into some years ago, so it's kind of vivid for me. But almost all of the sources of failures are decisions. I would say second is material variability, right? the variability of our processes of creating the substances that we use and the assembly processes that we use uh, would be two, two key pieces of those. Um, and then customers using our products in completely unexpected ways. Um, Adam Barrett's really, he's got this uh, use case seven um, campaign going where he talks about, you got to think through all the ways people can misuse or use your product. And, you know, the simple example is if you got a wrench in your hand, but you need to tap a bolt through an opening, a, a small hammer would be the appropriate tool, but you have a wrench in your hand. So you tap it with the wrench. I can, Imagine most of you uh, have done this at one point or another. If you do that a lot, you're going to cause your wrench to fail, right? It, it will not be aligned anymore. It'll be rounded over. It'll do all kinds of other issues. It might even break because it's not really set up to withstand impacts like a hammer is. And so the idea here is that there's lots of ways that we can um, have failures occur. 
right? But they, they really narrow down to a couple sources and um, decisions and variability are two part of it. And so the last set of info here is we're not just in the influencing role. We also have a leadership duty within our organizations, right? First off is back to the electrical engineering uh, body that I worked with early on as is problem solving, right? We get to do engineering. We get to run experiments. We get to understand failure mechanisms and, and process variability, for example, in such a way that allows us to find solutions to, to come up with problems. Now, we may not have the engineering chops to, to get into the details of what are the reasonable options to consider, but we certainly can lead a team of people to find that problem, to, to solve those problems. You know, the, the Six Sigma black belt type activities is pull together the appropriate team and help them solve the problem. And by going, it's one of the things that we do that very few other disciplines in the product development and maintenance world have the luxury of is we get to cross silos. We'll work with software, hardware, human factors, marketing, finance, and so on. And we get trained in failure analysis and understanding failure mechanisms. And if you're really good, you get a lot of experience and training on leading a team, leading a meeting, uh, creating a collaborative experience for folks to, even if it's just doing FMEAs, we need those meeting management and group dynamic type uh, skills in order for it to be ex effective. But we get to solve problems. We get to go work with people to implement, find issues, create solutions and implement them. And, and for me, anyway, that's a lot of fun. And we can take a leadership role in making those happen by facilitating those things in, in happening. As I mentioned, we have a unique view. Um, when I first started in reliability engineering, I was working on uh, really on inkjet printers. The senior project manager was a senior uh, uh, manager within the organization and had uh, managers for electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, software engineering, uh, marketing and, and supply chain and others were all these managers that had teams of people working for them and me. I had no team, it was just me. And I got time with the senior person just like all the other managers did. My input at those meetings carried as much weight as the electrical engineering team managers did. And I was just an engineer, first level assigned to this project. No, and it was my first assignment within the organization. Yet I was given a lot of deference and asked questions that often went across all of these other teams. And sometimes I'm talking to executives and then the next hour I'm talking to the technicians on the shop floor trying to make this product. And then, then I'm on the phone with the supplier in Asia and then I'm on a, phone to a supplier that just showed up. And then we even got to talk to customers. There's very few, if any other positions within engineering that gets that breadth of exposure and influence. And I think our leadership role is recognizing that we do get to do this. We do get to go from board level to customer to technician. And we can influence the decisions that all of them make. And that's, I think, keeping that in mind is a unique feature of what we do. And there's very few other parts of the organization that do that. And the really bottom line here of one of the things that I think is crucial to being a reliability engineer is that we have to add value. And I, I know I've done webinars on this. I've got a short ebook that's out on this on Ascendo. But the idea here is that Everything we do is, it has to add value, whether it's conversations, it's training, or it's setting up structures or guidelines, or it's problem solving, or asking questions, or whatever it is that we do, each and every one of those things we do should contribute to the um, ability of others to do their job well, and to create a product that actually meets customers' expectations, right? 
and it, within your organization, it, it value may be defined as time to market, or it might be cost, or it might be quality, or it might be low failure rate, or a mixture of all of those things. And so, but there's many ways that we can add value rather than just focusing on, oh, I need to run this halt test today and get this report to, to Jeff by Friday. Well, let's make sure that that report is actually going to be contributing information that Jeff needs to make decisions. That's an extra step, but that's where the value comes from. If that report goes over there and never gets read, it has no value. But if it goes to Jeff and Jeff gets his team together and says, hey, we need to solve these three problems because I understand them now and they're going to cause us problems in the future, let's get on these things. That adds value. That changed the behavior of Jeff and that team. We can focus on uh, failure rate reduction or reducing the risk of a delay in the program by finding issues earlier versus later. We can focus on customer value and what, what is it that they need and how do they use the product so that we can design a product that meets those requirements and so on. There's lots of ways we can add value. But the point is, is that we need to do that with every interaction, with every step of every day that we take, right? And so if you're being tasked to create an estimate, well, who needs it and to what degree? What's it gonna be used for and how can I create an estimate that is informative and useful for them to, to make a decision? That's adding value. So it really cuts down the, the chase. So I'll leave you a rhetorical question here at the end. Let me take a look at a, a comment. The last problem solving effort. I work hard, such management urges that the management did not support a disciplined approach. Any suggestions? Well, it's one of those old adages and it's one of those things where you have to have enough trust to, to, to be allowed the time to get it right. Whereas I also found that if after the fact, if you say, well, I told you so, we solved the wrong problem because of the urgency of this and we're now solving it again. There's that old adage of, you know, pay me now or pay me later is, well, we don't have time to prevent the problem. We seem to always find time to resolve the problem and it's way more expensive resolving it. Now we can say, I told you so, but it doesn't really work. So I don't recommend that approach. The idea here is to say, is to make the case to solve the real problem. And that's easier said than done, is if we actually solve, understand the problem, we have a much higher probability of actually solving it or preventing it. And as you get the opportunity to, to do the appropriate problem solving and due diligence to get it right, is quantify how useful that was as opposed to the shotgun approaches that we often take and how often that actually works. It's just keep track, keep a scorecard on it. And then you create the data set that says, here's the evidence. When we do it using the 8D method, we solve the problems 95% of the time. If we just go um, uh, uh, jump to the first solution that comes to mind and hope it works, we're at a 60% success rate. You do the math. Here's where the value is, is, is one of the suggestions. Every situation will be a little different. You also, it often helps to have a good champion that understands the premise of all this stuff, but it's chip away at it and create the space and the trust that this, the due diligence kind of process is, is more valuable in the long run. That'd be one way I would make a, a way to do that. Okay, so I think in summary, as I'm coming up, oh, just over my time limit, um, keep in mind that a lot of what we do is dealing with failures, as one would say is it keeps us in business, right? We have to deal with failures. The key is that we need to understand those failures. It's not just us. We need to help the rest of the organization, those people that we want to influence to understand those failures, the failure mechanisms. Our role is an influencer. Think of yourself as a consultant, right? You don't get the final say, but you certainly can shape the information that frames the questions that have to be answered. And we also have a role in leadership. You can take on that role as often as you feel comfortable. And the more you do it, the more effective you're going to be. The fewer, the 
the fewer failures that happen. And then, then we work on the culture to create a culture that avoids failures for our customers and for our systems because we have that fundamental culture of, of celebrating failures when they do occur or looking for them so that we can continue to learn. So that's my pitch for today. Thanks so much for attending and contributing. Um, I am actively looking at Zoom, Zoom webinar as a platform so that we can get our chat window uh, working. I really miss having the ability for attendees to chat with each other. And so I'm, I'm thinking about doing that. If, uh, if you've got uh, experience with the Zoom webinar platform, please let me know. I'd love to pick your brain a little bit about what's working and not working in that and how it would be different than what we're using now. So with that, uh, I'll stay on the line if there's any follow-up questions. And But I think I'll go ahead and close out the recording. And I, as usual, completely forgot to pull up what I'm going to be talking about next month or even what's on the docket for next week. You can find that at Ascendo Reliability underneath um, webinars and open the menu for upcoming live webinars. And we'll see you next week. And if not, next month. Talk to you all later. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you.